Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to Matthew chapter 1 or you can follow along on your device. That's where we begin this morning as we jump into Advent. Uh, Many of us, I realize, are probably still recovering from our turkey comas. Here's what happened to me on Thanksgiving Day. It was a first. It's never happened before. Uh, My wife and I had a bunch of different friends and family over, as many of us do. And uh, one of our friends brought his puppy. And my wife and I have a dog, which is the greatest dog in the world. Like, it really is the greatest dog ever in the history of dogs. So he was kind of getting frustrated with the puppy And uh, so I got on the ground with my dog and pulled him on top of me, like snuggled with him. And my friend's puppy, of course, like wants to get in on the action. So he walks over and pees on my face. (laughs) And if you're like, like, no, come on, like, no, that actually like hit me here, ran down my beard. Yep, I know. And here I am this morning. That, by the way, has nothing to do with today's teaching. I just thought I would tell you what happened to me on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, anyway, here we are, Advent. Uh, now, th- over the next uh, five gatherings, which will be today, all the Sundays, all the way up to Christmas Eve, uh, we're going to explore Matthew, the end of chapter one, and all of chapter two. And we're going to look at the five dreams that Matthew talks about in his gospel surrounding the birth of Jesus. Now, typically, if you've been around church or religion when it comes to Christmas, uh, we, we often talk about the, the story that's found in the Gospel of Luke, probably because Luke's is a little bit more sentimental, Luke's is a little bit more joyful, Luke's just a better writer, I mean, quite honestly, than Matthew was, because Matthew's Gospel is it's troubling. It's actually a really, you, you read it, there's some really troubling, disturbing things that Matthew reports in the first chapter and second chapter of his book. But this is what we want to explore together, are, are the five dreams, and why is it that Matthew is talking about these things? And so as a way of walking through that this morning, the first thing I want to do is really just walk through these verses and give us a little bit of understanding. Then I want to take a big step back into the backstory, what was going on behind the scenes, and then we'll finish with one observation. Sound good? Great, because that's what I had planned this morning, and it's what we're going to do even if you didn't want to do it. 
With that said, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and gave him the name Jesus. Now, Matthew, if you're familiar with Luke's narrative, Matthew really actually speeds things up. I mean, he goes pretty quickly from telling us Mary is pregnant to Jesus being born. And what's interesting is in the first verse, he makes a comment as though it's just the most common thing that you would ever hear. Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And he just keeps on going. Now, you may hear that and think, okay, yeah, of course, we know that story. And while it might feel familiar to us, because this is something we hear about every Advent and every Christmas season, it's something that actually should make us go, hang on a second. Mary is found to be with the child through the Holy Spirit. I would contend, actually, that the original readers of Matthew's gospel would not have been able to read past that quickly. And that even though Matthew arrives there in a few words in verse 18... He drops a major hint that's easy for us to miss because we're not reading in the original language of which Matthew wrote, which was the Greek language. When Matthew says this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about, the word in Greek is genesis, which we pronounce genesis. So Matthew begins his story about Mary talking about genesis and talking about the spirit. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, but the first book of the Bible is a book called Genesis. And it was given that name long before Matthew wrote his gospel when the Hebrew scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, was translated into the Greek. And so those who are reading this would have picked up what Matthew was laying down, that this idea of Genesis is a major hint that he's dropping. And then he talks about the Spirit. Now, the book of Genesis begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. The opening lines are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Now, this idea of hovering is a very motherly image. It's this idea of a mom who's teaching her baby how to walk, and while they hold onto her hands, she lets go and hovers over them, ready to catch them as soon as they fall down. The rabbis talk about this idea of the Spirit of God being introduced right in the beginning of Genesis, and they say that this is the animating life and energy that brings all things to bear in the world. 
That it's the energy and the life of God that holds all things together. This is what the Spirit is. And the Spirit is the one that brings forth this new creation. So for us, it might just be a few words when we read that Mary is found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. But Matthew is doing something here and giving a hint about some sort of new creation being born right here, right now. And it happening in a miraculous way. Now, I know that in the culture in which we live, especially over the last several hundred years, something has developed in the minds of humans, and it's this. We can understand everything. Just give us enough time, just give us enough money, and we'll figure it out. Oh, and if we can't figure it out, then it's probably not true. And this way of thinking is rather new when it comes to the human experience. But we might come to verses like this and be like, <laughs> you're still talking about the virgin birth, are you? I mean, do you know how the, the whole thing works? And I would say to you, no, because I went to Christian school and we didn't have sex ed. <laughs> we were just told... <laughs> There was a virgin birth, and we were like, okay. <laughs> but there's this idea of like, I mean, there's so many stories in the Bible. Can we just be honest? There's so many stories in the Bible that you read them, and you're like, these people. And then you realize like, wait, you, you expect me to believe this? And see, what can happen is we can get hung up on those details. One of the things, though, that I love about the gospel writers is they teach us how to speak of the mystery of God without the need to explain it. I mean, think about this. If you can explain something, doesn't it kind of lose its luster a little bit? I mean, if you can explain something, you're like, oh. We, we, we really think we can explain everything. Really? Really? How do you explain the love of a parent for their child? Like, can you just give me a scientific formula for that one? Especially when the kid is rebellious or hurts their parents over and over and goes in a self-destructive path and these parents continue to ache for that child. Explain that one to me. You see, there are some things we can explain in this world, but one of the things I've grown to love about the sacred text is it doesn't waste its time trying to explain it. It just speaks of the mystery and invites us into it. And maybe when it comes to this virgin birth, this image that Matthew gives of the Spirit hovering over the waters, we might begin to ask the question, what is this saying? What is it saying to us that falls outside of explanation? Joseph Campbell talks about this idea and says, we oftentimes want the explanation, but what the gospel writers might be doing is giving us a meaning behind it. In his book, Here with a Thousand Faces, he writes this about Mary in the virgin birth. In an inconspicuous village, the maid, speaking of Mary, is born who will maintain herself undefiled of the fashionable errors of her generation, a woman who was the bride of the wind, her womb remaining fallow as the primordial abyss, speaking of the water in creation summons to itself by its very readiness the original power that fertilized the void. You read something like that, and you go, I don't even know if it needs any explanation. 
Because what Matthew is saying to us, and what Matthew is hinting at is the same power that brought the universe into existence and that holds it together is still actively and intimately involved in the affairs of human beings. Now, as wonderful as that might sound, there's still a problem that comes up in this story, and the problem is religion. Because as soon as we hear about Mary, all of a sudden it's you hear about Joseph, who was faithful to the law. In other words, he was a really good rule follower. Any good rule followers in here, by the way? Okay, I just want to know who I need to spend more time with to tell you life can be way more fun. Um, he was a really good rule follower is what it means. Not to discredit Joseph. He's earnest. He's faithful. He's blameless. And he hears about what's happening with Mary. And he decides, well, I could do one thing, which would be to follow the letter of the law exactly, which means he would have exposed her, as it says, to public disgrace. Because Mary and Joseph are engaged, which means it's kind of a pre-contract before marriage, a little bit more official than engagement in our culture. And if there was a woman who was found to be pregnant when she was engaged or when she was married and the husband said, it's not mine, there was a very public trial that was filled with shame. And so Joseph, being a good guy, said, well, I can probably follow the letter of the law, which would mean not marrying her, but I'm not going to go all the way and have a huge public trial that shames her. Why would he do this? Because this is what religion says to do. Now, you might sit here and roll your eyes and be like, oh, religion, people like Joseph. But I really think oftentimes what we try to do is we stand outside of the Bible and we read it as though it's something else about other people and we play judge and jury. Maybe what we should do is find ourselves in the stories. Like what would we do if our significant other came to us and said, hey, just hear me out. The Holy Spirit and I are, were hanging out last night. We would think they were bonkers. We would think they were lying. We would feel betrayed. We'd be wounded. Like, we, we, we remove the humanity from it. We do ourselves and the text a great disservice. Joseph would have been felt betrayed. He would have been angry. He would have been confused. And I honestly think he probably didn't believe her, which is why he said, I'm going to divorce her quietly. But then Joseph has a dream. Now, if you read through the sacred text, one of the things you'll quickly realize is that there are dreams over and over in which the divine or the spiritual realm is speaking to human beings, and they take dreams very seriously. In our culture, largely speaking, we don't take dreams very seriously. Dreams are just these weird things that happen. And I always find it interesting that someone says things like, I had the weirdest dream last night. Well, of course you did. Dreams are by nature weird. Like, if someone came up to you and said, I had the most normal dream yesterday, and you'd be like, what? Yeah, I was sleeping, and then I woke up in bed, and got up, and got ready, and drove to work, had a coffee, sent some emails, filled out some reports, me and a business colleague went out for lunch. You're like, that's not a dream. Dreams are, by nature, weird. I have a friend who likes talking about his dreams, and often has some pretty bizarre dreams, and uh, his, his wife currently is asking him to stop talking about his dreams. And so in preparation for this morning, I thought, I want to hear about one of his dreams. And so I sent him a text, and this is what he sent me. I was fishing, and I got a huge one on the line, and as I reel it in, I realize it's a golden retriever. 
but it's totally normal to catch a golden retriever in this dream. So I reel it in, I get the hook out, I give it a good scratch down and toss it back into the water, and all of a sudden the water is teeming with golden retrievers, swimming around like a school of fish darting this way and that, all locked together. Now, does that sound about like the kind of dreams that you have? Yeah, especially after like a weekend like this one, where you're just tired, just bizarre. And as weird as dreams might seem to us, in the ancient consciousness, what they believed was that there was a depth beneath us in this world that we could not access in our waking mind. That there was another world that was right beside us that in our waking state we were unable to access. It's interesting, Sigmund Freud, when he spoke about dreams, he said it's the gateway to our subconscious, to our unconscious, to the parts of us that we're not aware of. Carl Jung, in talking about dreams, said that dreams for us are our soul's way of speaking when our ego is undefended. That every time we're awake, we're aware of how we're presenting ourselves to the world and we're drawing from all different places to find our identity. And he says, but when we fall asleep, all of a sudden, all of that pretense that we live most of our lives with is gone and our soul begins to speak to us. Sometimes it compensates for the way that we're living our life. Sometimes it invites us to become more fully who we are created to be, but this is how it speaks. Some people say, no, you know what dreams are? It's your brain going through your storage system from the day and deleting all the files that you don't need anymore. That's all it is, just this weird conglomeration. But one of the things that can't be denied is that throughout every generation, dreams seem to speak to us. Walter Brueggemann, in talking about dreams in the ancient text, says this. He says, we become when we dream, we become open to stirrings that we do not initiate. Such stirrings come to us in the night unbidden. Dreams address us. They invite us beyond our initiative-taking management. The ancient world and the biblical tradition knew about dreams. The ancients understood the unbidden communication in the night opened sleepers to a world different from the one they managed during the day. The ancients dared to imagine, moreover, that this unbidden communication is one venue in which the holy purposes of God, perplexing and as unreasonable as they might be, come to us. These dreams are unbidden. And this is what happens with Joseph he hears about the spirit in Mary being pregnant. He makes a decision and then he falls asleep and an angel speaks to him and says, take Mary with you to be your wife. Take her with you. I can't imagine what went through Joseph's mind when he woke up. And I say that because this is a guy who had been loyal and faithful to his religion and now he's about to break the rules of religion. And keep in mind, Luke tells us that all this went down in Nazareth, which was a town whose maximum size would have been around 400 people. And you know how it is when something scandalous happens, right? Especially in religious contexts. Everyone keeps their mouth shut and they pray directly to God for you. No, 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 no. We love to, do you know what I heard about Mary and Joseph, right? It's like we haven't changed. And like, hey, I'm sharing this with you so you'll know how to pray for them. Anyway, she said the spirit got her pregnant, <laughs> right? This is what's happening. So what is Joseph saying yes to? 
A lifetime of scandal following him and his wife living in a small town as religious people. And yet he wakes up from this dream, from this communication in this world that is right beside him and beneath him and around him, and he realizes, I had it wrong. And it says he takes Mary to be his wife. And then Matthew uh, adds two details that I find interesting. One, he says, thus was fulfilled uh, what the prophet spoke when he said, the virgin will conceive and give birth and you will name him Emmanuel, God with us. He's speaking there, by the way, of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet found in the Hebrew scriptures. And there's a story in Isaiah chapter 7 about a king in Israel named King Ahaz in Assyria, the world's global military superpower at this point, is on their way to destroy Jerusalem and destroy King Ahaz. And King Ahaz says to Isaiah, we got to figure out what to do. And Isaiah says, hey, relax. God is with us. God is with you. And Ahaz says, no, 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 I don't trust that. And he says, well, here's what you can trust, Ahaz. This time next year, the virgin will give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, in that context, Isaiah is speaking specifically about his wife and saying to Ahaz, God will give you a sign to show that he is with you. You have nothing to worry about. Now, we may hear these words that Matthew quotes and go, oh, yeah, God with us. I get it, Jesus. But there's also very political undertones going on. Why would Matthew talk about a situation where a global military superpower is threatening the Jewish people? Why would he tell that story? Why would he reference that prophecy? And then he says that, they, that Joseph and Mary live together and that she gives birth to a son named Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Many of you know the name Jesus is also the same name Joshua or in Hebrew it would be Yeshua, which means God saves. And we hear this idea of God saves us from our sins and if you grew up like me, what you hear is God saves me from my sin and God saves you from your sin. But in the Jewish consciousness, saving from sins was a collective thing. They understood that there was a collective that needed salvation, that sin was a part of the communal life, not just the individual life. And one of the recognitions that they had, especially with the phrase save from sins, is that sin, the punishment for sin, was exile. Meaning you were forced out of your country, forced out of your home. So to be saved or rescued from sin was to be brought back from exile. So, so why at the end of this narrative, where Matthew begins talking about the Holy Spirit and he talks about Joseph being a good, upstanding Jewish citizen who then has a dream and changes his mind, why would he add a little bit about this political reality that existed centuries before and then make a reference to exile? It's a great question and it brings us to the backstory. Most scholars agree that the first gospel that was written when it comes to chronological order was the gospel of Mark. And most agree that Matthew probably used Mark or some source that Mark used to write his gospel, which dates Matthew obviously later than Mark. And many agree and most agree that Matthew probably wrote this after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. In 63 AD, there was a Jewish revolt. And it wasn't throughout the entire country, 
But what happened is Jewish citizens who got sick and tired of the Romans putting the boot on their neck rose up and they began a revolt or a revolution against Rome. Now Rome had one policy when it came to sedition. Absolute destruction. And the reason they had this policy is they thought, we've conquered so many people throughout the world, if we go easy on any one group who revolts against us, everyone else is going to hear about it and think, maybe we should try the same thing. So, if somebody revolts, absolutely decimate them, totally and completely. So the revolt began in 63 AD, and then led by General Pompey in Rome, Rome went through the Judean province, which had historically been the most hostile province in all of Rome, and said, enough. And they obliterated the Jewish people. And the keystone or the penultimate moment of their victory was when they went and they looted the temple and took all the gold out and then they set it on fire and then they began pushing stones off the temple mount onto the road below and completely destroyed the city. The people who lived in that city took off. Alexander Shia talks about who Matthew is writing to with this background, and this is what he says. He says, Matthew's gospel was written to the Messianic Jews, or the Jews who follow Jesus, of Antioch, two to five years after the destruction of the great temple of Jerusalem and the massacre of all its priests. The Jewish community was being torn apart by intense grief and tremendous struggles. The temple had represented the center of their lives, and they were certain that God had abandoned them. They felt alone, and they felt frightened. Why would Matthew make a reference to exile? Why would Matthew make a reference to a global military superpower who's threatening your very existence? Because that's what the people who receive this good news of Jesus, which is what gospel means, that's what, exactly what they were going through. I mean, what would you do if your life and everything you had based your life on completely and totally fizzled out and crumbled? What would you do if everything that you believed to be true, the things that you trusted, and what would you do if that was just gone? How would you respond? Maybe you hear these words of Alexander Shia and you hear God has abandoned us. You hear alone and you hear frightened. And maybe you resonate with that kind of feeling. And maybe in some ways this time of year, each and every year, brings those feelings up in you. This is the backstory of what's happening with Matthew, and into that very narrative, against that backdrop, Matthew insists that God is still in the business of new creation, no matter what is going on. That God comes to this teenage peasant who is unwed named Mary and says, hey, I have an idea, but I need your help. And she says, I'm up for whatever you have in mind. That God comes to this young man who also would have been a teenager named Joseph and through a messenger in a dream says to him, hey, I know you have your ideas about religion, but I want to remind you that I am not confined or defined by any religious boundaries or any institution or any building that you've been told I'm confined by. That I'm always at work and I have an idea, but I need your help. And just like Mary, who had already said yes, Joseph wakes up and says, I'm up for whatever you have in mind. 
What would that do to them in their minds, hearing this from God? What would that do to the people who had been exiled from Jerusalem and from Israel? What would that do to those who had lost loved ones in the mass slaughter of the Romans to hear this kind of story? What might it do for you to hear this kind of thing where you are right now because maybe you feel like God has abandoned you and you feel alone and isolated and you feel frightened. So with that, one observation. I find it interesting that God just refuses to abandon us. I find that very fascinating. And when I say us, I'm not just talking about us seated here, I'm talking about humanity. Last night, my wife and I were with some friends and we were talking about um, all the shootings that have happened recently. One is recently, it was last week, and I made a comment about a shooting and my friend responded with her comment about another shooting. And we both froze and said, how awful is it that we can't even talk about shootings knowing which one we're talking about because there's so many happening every day. Some estimate over 600 mass shootings in 2022. And yet God has refused to abandon us in our trouble and in our struggle. In, in our bent toward violence, in, in our constant betrayal of one another and of God. And, and the reason I, I point this out is because this is ultimately the story of Christmas, that something is grossly wrong with the world, and God refuses to abandon us, and God gives of God's self to us and through us and in us and says, I want to bring something forth that's brand new. That's ultimately the story of Christmas. I mean, think of all the great Christmas movies that we watch over and over and over and over and over every year. Have you noticed that the storyline's always kind of the same? You have a character that's a bit lovable. Sometimes you have a grumpy person involved. And then somehow things tumble toward like this impossible feeling of, oh my gosh, Christmas is going to be ruined. And what always happens at the last second? Cousin Eddie takes his trailer, right? <laughs> or what happens at the last second? Buddy the elf gets everybody singing and Santa's sl It's always this something new comes out of the blue. You never saw it coming. We tell this story over and over and over. It's because it's a beautiful story. It's a redemptive story. Something about Christmas, no matter how religious somebody is, is compelling because what it says is no matter how terrible things are, there is something happening. The spirit is still moving and bringing forth new birth and new creation. But here's my observation in all of that. God, in this movement, says to human beings, I need your help to do this. I need your help to do this. This is why it's such a crime when we remove the human side out of the Christmas story. I mean, we know that God could have come any way God wanted. He could have just kind of parted the clouds or whatever and yelled at everybody. Or he could have just like sent down some like beam and made everyone just autotrons and perfectly obedient. But instead... God said, no, 
I need the help of an unwed Jewish teenage peasant. And I need her to say yes. God says, I need the help of an unwed, rule-following teenage peasant. And I need him to say yes. That God didn't come to us from on high. God came to us in the most vulnerable of circumstances. Born into straw poverty. Born to a couple who would have been embroiled in scandal with their family. God came to us as one of us as a way of saying to all of us, this is what God in the world looks like. I need your help to bring forth this new creation. All of this is unbidden. All of this is God's action. All of this is God's refusal to abandon us. And in the midst of it, he says, what will you say? You see, as we stand here at the very beginning of Advent, the reality is this. God's still in the business of creating new things. And I don't know where you are sitting here this morning, this Christmas. I don't know what you've experienced. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what this season brings up in you. But wherever you are, no matter what you feel has ended or what you feel is destroyed, what the Christmas story tells us is that God is still in the business of creating something new, and he's still inviting us to participate. And the question maybe for us to consider together this morning is when God invites us, what will we say? Let's pray together. God, there's great comfort in knowing you refuse to abandon us in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our greed, in the midst of our violence, in the midst of our demonizing the other. You continue to refuse to abandon us. More than that, you're a God who continues to bring forth the new to bring forth new birth in our midst, even in the most troubling of circumstances. And maybe the most miraculous piece of all is that you invite us to be a part, a central part of your redemptive story. Would we hear together this morning your invitation to participate with you, and would you, through your spirit, move in us as you did in your servant Mary, as you did in your servant Joseph, to say a resounding yes to your spirit. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends this morning said. Thank you for engaging with our teaching. Before you go, we wanna highlight a few things going on in the life of our community. Today marks the first day of Advent. Advent is a beautiful season within the church as we get to celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Perhaps Advent and Christmas might take on a new meaning and significance for you this year. We certainly need a season to be reminded that the hopes and fears of all the years have been met in Christ. We've put together resources to help you experience the God who is with us. You can find them by visiting our website at denverchurch.org and clicking on the Advent resource button on the homepage. And to stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, 
we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download the DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And now may you, our siblings in Christ, continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we might be a healing presence in our world. Go in peace.